0: Good morning, how's everybody doing today? It's another beautiful day here, it seems like just one after another, it's fantastic. Um, Just wanna let you guys know as we continue in this week that the concepts that I'm laying out today and some more are actually in the book that I wrote by the same name, The Struggle Is Real. So if you're looking for more or you can't take notes fast enough, um, you can pick this up in the bookstore. It has a Bible study and a video series that goes with it as well as some of my other books are in there. So I'm happy to do that. We're going to do a book signing tomorrow, uh, Thursday morning after the session. So we'd love to meet you and chat if you want. Um, I think you maybe have guessed already by yesterday, but I'm kind of a bottom line person. Just something in me is always like, what are we really talking about? You know, like, what are we trying to get at? And so today, in the midst of just the noise and clutter of all of our lives, I'm I'm hopeful that this morning we might be reminded about who this living God is that we serve and what truly is the simple gospel for each of us. I think it's it's a reminder that I personally cannot get enough of because this world is dark and loud. And so when we have an opportunity to pull away like this and to be together in this way, I think God can do something deep within us. No matter if you've been following Jesus for 50 years or five minutes, there's an opportunity here for all of us to come to that deeper place. So because I'm a bottom line person and because I've been in ministry for a long time, about 20 years, I find that it does get really noisy even in the church. And we can sort of forget, like, what is it that we're actually doing? Like, what is this about in the midst of all of the theology and the arguments? And just like Richard was talking about, all of these polarities in our world, even within our own kingdom, even within our own family, what are we really about? And because I'm that bottom line person, I'm like, what is it actually that Jesus says that we would find if we were to find new life in him? When Jesus said, I've come so that you may have life and that you could have it to the full. Take away all the Christianese and what does the Bible actually tell us that a God-centered life would look like? Remember yesterday we talked about setting an intention to choose life and that we have an opportunity to choose our reality based on what we can see around us and how we try to interpret all of our struggles and all of these things based on our reality or we have the opportunity to say, what does God say is the reality of life in him. So I've put together a little inventory for you. This is from The Struggle is Real, but we're just going to actually go through it. So if you're a journaler or you got your notes, if you don't want to take notes, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put a statement up on the screen and I want you to just like gut check yes or no. Okay. All of you are going to want to say, sometimes I'm like that and sometimes I'm not, but just like Try to let your own soul just answer the question for you quickly. You can write it down for yourself or you can just let them go by. These statements are my interpretation of what the scripture says it will look like to live a God-centered life. This is what the kind of person that I would be if I was living in a God-centered reality where I was experiencing the fullness and freedom of Jesus. So I've written them myself, but they all come from various places in scripture. So let's look at the first one. Number one, I am totally committed to knowing the truth about myself. I'm not afraid to ask others around me to help me see blind spots or trouble areas in my life. Everyone, yes or no? No, just kidding. You don't have to say it out loud, you can just say it to yourself. Okay. Number two, I have a peaceful and non anxious presence, both inside and out. Number three, Generally, I feel that my soul is untroubled and undisturbed. I have nothing to hide. Everyone's wishing we were back at the skits now. Yeah. Number four, <laughs> Number four. I, I regularly and sincerely ask for forgiveness from my family, friends, and co-workers. Number five, I respect my own heart, body, and soul as something to be cherished. Number six, I treat conflicting patterns of thinking and behaving in myself with gentleness. Number seven, I have a clear sense of purpose in my life. This is the rough one. Number eight, I have experienced deep compassion for someone who has hurt me. Now, the reason I wrote it that way is because the fruit of forgiveness is compassion, The real freedom in forgiveness is when we actually feel compassion, even for someone who has hurt us. Number nine, I feel total freedom from my past hurts and regrets. And number 10, I experience joy on a daily basis. So here's the thing about this inventory. Christian or not, this is what we're after, This is what human beings are after. This is what Brene Brown is peddling. I love Brene Brown. You are not going to find this within yourself. Let me just make that really clear. I love all of the Oprah-isms out there. All of these people are seeking this inner peace. But the Bible tells us that when we live in a God-centered reality, the answers to those questions can be yes. Yes that I can be a person who is that kind of person that actually is very attractive in this world to other people. Like, that's what people are looking for. We're looking for people around us who have a peaceful and non-anxious presence, who are not only comfortable but gentle with themselves and their limitations. We're looking for people who have a clear sense of purpose and joy. And I don't know about you, but if you just put aside your nose right now and realize, oh, wait, I'm not actually, I haven't arrived at this, It's a very aspirational vision for life, and it actually feels and sounds really good. And in the mix of all the doctrine and theology, I think we can sometimes lose the fact that what God is calling us to is actually like a really healthy life. It's exactly what human beings are looking for. It's this healthy and free life. Philippians 3.16 says, Now let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, let us live up to what we have already attained. You see, Jesus has put this aspirational vision out for us, and he's not condemning us, and he's not whipping us into submission. It's an an invitation to a relationship that allows us to be moving towards these kinds of realities in our life, not because we won't still have trouble, not because we still don't live in this dark world, but because we serve a God of light, and he invites us to walk into the light. So in the midst of all of that, what we're talking about when we talk about a God-centered life is a life where I am being transformed into that kind of person. Have I arrived? No. Will I arrive on the side of heaven? No. But I have the opportunity to step into that journey if I want to take it. So if that sounds good to you, and I think we probably would all agree that we're not there in any of or all those things, but that those are, those are things that I want to be, if it feels and sounds good to you, this is what God is offering in Scripture. This is what He says that we can experience. But we have to live in our reality, right? We have to live in anybody um, snap at their kids since they've been here. Not no one. No one. Everyone's been totally holy since you've been here. That's awesome. We should all move here. I mean, it's, it's, it's like you still have to live with your humanity. You've got to live in it. And they're human too. And they, they make you snap. It was their fault, you know. You deny and blame. Shift it around, right? So even though we're here in this beautiful place and, we're, and, and things are taken care of for us and we get to come to worship twice a day, you still have to live with your humanity. You still have to live in those struggles, in that gap. So... What if that struggle that you're experiencing is actually much worse than you think? That that daily struggle is actually related to something that is much more insidious and dark and deep than you maybe even want to admit. When I shared yesterday the story about the dishwasher, and when I said I didn't get a master's degree to empty a dishwasher, what I could have done then is just condemned myself, tried to cut that weed off that's growing in my soul, just cut it off right there, right at the soil, because it popped up to the surface. So I can just cut it off right there, but what happens when you cut off a weed at the soil level? It's back in like an hour. It's the thing that grows faster than anything else, right? But when we have curiosity about what God is teaching us, not condemnation, then we're able to actually start pulling on that root. And what I want to submit to you guys today is that the struggles that you are experiencing have a wiry root in your soul, And when you begin to pull on them, you see that they're connected to other places in your life. And that when I have frustration or anger about a life that I don't want to live, it's related to things that are connected to a root. And that what God says about our reality is that root is a lot worse than we think. And that root connects us deeply back into this whole concept of sin, So I want to give you guys just an expression of what that sin has done in our life to to help you sort of think through what this might look like for you. So this comes from a book that actually I believe is in the bookstore as well. It's called Jesus, a Theography. It's by Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet, two theologians. You might not agree with everything in it, but I do like this concept. The concept within this book is that sin has created a four-way brokenness in all of us. Sin has created a four-way brokenness in all of us. The first thing that sin creates is a broken relationship between us and God. Now, in my church at home where I normally preach, we have a lot of people who are new to faith or they've, they've kind of been de-churched or they grew up Catholic and they're, they're coming together. So we're trying to find ways to explain what a holy God is to people who, of whom the, the concept of sin it just is, is so distasteful, right? People don't even like to use the word. I'm like, what reality are you living in? Just follow me around. I'll show you what sin is. I mean, uh, maybe you guys are way different than me, but I'm experiencing it at all times. But because of that, I try to explain what is it that it means that God's a holy God and that because of sin, we can't be in relationship with him. And my best way of describing that is that because God is light, if you think about what light does... Darkness just can't exist in the presence of light. It's a law of the universe. A law of the universe is that when light is present, darkness is obliterated. So when sin entered into our world, a brokenness with God came because darkness came into us. And because there is some darkness in us, we cannot be in the presence of light without being obliterated. That's how I explain what holiness is. It's not because God's out to get you. It's not because God is evil. There's no evil in God, but there's also no darkness in God. And if there is darkness in you, that cannot stand in the presence of light. The first thing that sin has done is it's broken us with relationship to our creator God. The second thing that sin does is it breaks us with relationship in ourselves. Think about how crazy it is that human beings are this like ball of confusion inside. You know, we're people who are like, I don't know who I am. I'm just trying to find myself. I'm just trying to find my calling. I just imagine the rest of God's creation listening to human beings like, these trees out here listening to us and being like, what is with those people? Like, like a redwood tree has never said, I just wish I was skinnier, and I just, I don't like this grove. Like, why can't I be a willow tree, you know? Like, my dog has never had an existential crisis about, like, his calling. Like, my dog is very clear about his job. All of creation knows where it belongs, except for human beings, Like, we have a brokenness in ourselves. Like, we don't know who we are. Like, that's a big problem in this beautiful creation. If we believe in a heavenly father who created all, one thing is not like the others. And that one thing is us. The third brokenness, we have brokenness with God, broken relationship with God, broken relationship with ourselves, broken relationship with each other. Even the people that we love, we sometimes can sense that there's a chasm there that we can't cross. For those of you, all of us have families, you are either have parents or you are parents or your grandparents. You know that there's times with even the people that you love and cherish the most in your life, it can feel like you're talking a different language. There can be a chasm there. And this is talking about loving relationships not to mention those very difficult people that we talked about yesterday. Your very special people in your life. Those relationships, there's a brokenness because two broken people, when they come together, they can't, they can't cross that chasm themselves. Sin has created a broken relationship with each other as well. I posted this last week on my Instagram. You guys might think this is funny. And I love that this is like what pop culture thinks about this whole concept. Do we have that one? There you go. Um, girls have a hard time choosing where to eat because the last time they chose, they doomed all of humanity. <laughs> like, <laughs> so give your girls a break. If I was a guy, by the way, I, w- I wouldn't be allowed to use that, but I'm allowed to because I'm a girl. So um, but I, I'm thinking of this, like, look at this. Like, we're making jokes about it, but in it, there's something in this, this sort of like an ancestral belief. We, we understand that something is broken in us between us as well. A broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with ourselves, a broken relationship with each other. And the fourth way that that sin ripples out is a broken relationship with the world. Richard did a beautiful job of laying this out for us about the dissonance and disorder in our world. Do you know that that dissonance and disorder is a result of sin? That's what we're experiencing when we talk about the brokenness of humanity. It's actually worse, I think, than we want to believe Or perhaps we separate ourselves and say it's worse for those people, and we somehow find a way to not embrace our own honest reality. But scripture gives a much different story about our struggle. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. In another version, it says deceived there. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Everybody comfortable putting their name in that verse? Just take out the we ourselves and put your name in there. Most of us are like, no, actually, it's not that bad, you know, especially if you were raised in the church. I I grew up in a Christian home. My parents became Christians in their 20s, so they were very, very serious about church life with their children, and so we, we did all the things, and we did all the religion, but one thing that was hard for them to grasp or for me to grasp as their child is they were trying to experience and figure out their own faith, remember, we're all broken, one of my counseling supervisors said that if you can forgive your parents by age 30, that's like a healthy, that's a healthy trajectory. So we're all broken. And they were broken people trying to figure that out. But there was a dissonance between what I was hearing and what I was experiencing in my home. And when that happens, when you're in a Christian home, you, you start to think, this isn't about us, though. That's about those people. We need to evangelize those people. When who is in need of that simple gospel but us? And you read this and you're like, do I put myself in that category? Because Paul puts himself in that category. Not only does Paul put himself in that category, but he also puts the whole church in that category. He says, we, ourselves, like, hey, everybody reading this letter right now. This is about us. And I look at that and I say, in your reality, do you put yourself in that category? When you think about your struggles, are you able to say, yes, that was me? Like, I have been foolish. I have been disobedient. I have been deceived. I believe that there is an insidious force in this world. That is Satan who wants to deceive us. If you think about what happened in the garden with that little funny comic, but between Adam and Eve, think about this, okay? God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any fruit, any tree in this garden, just not this one, right? And if you just didn't know that one part, if you just didn't know that one part of the story, and you just read it, what it says is that Eve saw that the food was desirable and good to eat and desirable for gaining wisdom, and it looked good. Like, that's just a good decision. If you didn't know what God had said, you would say, this is an independent woman who made a good decision based on what she could see. The fall of humanity came in an independent person making a decision based on what they could see. That's how sin entered in. It was uh, taking ourselves out of dependency on God and into this independence. And yet in our own lives, we try to fix our own struggles all the time. We're independently acting away from God. And he calls us into this place where he says, actually, your struggles are a big deal. In the story of David and Abigail that I shared yesterday, what was the problem in that story? The, The story was the same. It was people's interpretation Nabal had one thought, David had another, and Abigail was following God's wisdom. The story was the same. And it's the same in your life. It's not about the memories that you have. When you begin to pull up that root, when you think of those Kairos moments, those Polaroid moments, it's not the memory itself that's the problem. It's the interpretation of the memory. It's what you begin to derive meaning from in the memory, Whatever happened to you, whether it's very hard or not, I want to tell you guys something. After 10 years of counseling, I began to hear something over and over again in counseling with men and women. So often would I hear it that I thought, do y'all know each other? What is happening here? And here's what I would hear. It did not matter how bad the story was that the person was telling me. And believe me, I've heard the worst of the worst of humanity. And it didn't matter if it was a middle school girl telling me about her breakup or a middle-aged woman telling me about some of the most horrific stories of abuse that I've ever heard. Do you know what they all would say? They would all say, it's not that bad. Someone has it worse than me. Like somewhere in the story, no matter, and sometimes I'd be like, no, it's like objectively bad. Like it's really bad, but it didn't matter. Because somehow in order to kind of survive in the darkness of this world, somehow we've heard this message that is, it's not that bad. Someone has it worse than me. Do you know what that does when you hear that? It shuts you down. It says, don't deal with it. Don't deal with it. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Just cut off this weed right at the soil. Don't actually try to get to the root. See, what the enemy does is he deceives. And deception comes in the form of any time that we don't take this life This asset that God has given us, we don't take it seriously enough to say, God wants to heal me. And it doesn't matter if the healing is from a bad perm in middle school, you can read about that in the book, or if the healing is from years of betrayal or abuse or hardship. It's not the memory, it's the interpretation of the memory. I mean, I like wanted to do an exorcism in my house when this happened one time. I was helping my child with math. It was, They were in elementary school. I don't even know which one it was. But one of the kids needed help with math. And what came out of this child's mouth at like age seven was not, I'm, I'm bad at math. They were frustrated. And they didn't say, I'm bad at math. They said, I'm bad. I'm like, hey, Satan, get out of my house. Because where does a child pick that up? This is what I mean, that the struggle is worse than we think. And so, no matter what it was in those Kairos moments, the good ones or the hard ones, when we have those moments that we remember, it's not the moment itself, it's the interpretation of that moment that lives on in us, and it goes deep into our operating system, and we begin to function out of it. So, when I pull on the root of why I'm I'm frustrated by emptying a dishwasher... When I pull on the root of that, what am I going to find? I'm going to find that there is a part of me that has been striving, that is striving with ambition because I want to be noticed or loved because I'm a middle kid and middle kids got issues. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what your issue is, but the point is you came from somewhere and we serve a God who says, hey, it's actually really bad. Like, It's worse than you think. And oftentimes, it's those of us who've been raised in the church and we've been the good kids who can't embrace this to be true. And oftentimes, the people who experience the most freedom and the most joy and the most purpose in life are the people who've been at the real bottom. And yet, here we are in the church acting like we haven't seen the bottom. How are we we meant to minister to a broken and dark world if you don't know that you have a bottom and that it's been bad? So Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish... Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a four way brokenness. Can you find yourself there? Because here comes the good news. That's the bad news. Titus 3 goes on. It says this, but, I love those transitions in scripture, but, Listen up, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, it's like Paul just can't stop talking. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Richard will pick up on that tonight, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, he might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul gives us the bad news. It is worse than we think, but then he just is overcome by promise after promise after promise about what God has done because this is true. Because it is true that we ourselves were broken But, but the kindness of our God appeared. So if you're looking in your Bible at Titus or if you just want to write down four words, I want to look, we could do this for eight weeks, but we won't. Um, I want to look at just one part here. It's in verse five and it says, and this is the NIV translation. It says, according to his own mercy. I just want to talk briefly about according to his own mercy as God's response to us at the bottom. And I want to do it by looking at a familiar passage that you guys probably have seen before in John chapter 8. So if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, we can read this passage together. And I want you to think about, because we know that it says in Scripture in the book of Hebrews, that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So what that means for us is that every time we read about Jesus' life and his way with humans, we're seeing the character of God play out. So in John chapter 8, we're going to see what according to his own mercy looks like. Starting in verse 2, at dawn, Jesus, so Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. You're probably familiar with the the, the expression that a rabbi will sit down to teach, and people will come around him, and Jesus would do that. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This is so weird. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now first of all, remember what we said about humility being controlled strength yesterday? There's not a lot you can do besides get lower than the people who are accusing you. The kind of controlled strength to be like, you ain't bothering me. This is why I love Jesus. He especially likes to do this with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's like, hold on a second. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. Lots of conjectures about what he wrote. What did he do? Did he write on the ground names of people that were accusing her? Was he like, hey, I know you. I know all of you. Did he write the Shema, sort of the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you will love the Lord your God, reminding them of love? We don't know what he did. Was he just distracting them from this woman in a state of undress, just trying to get eyes off of her? Because Jesus always affords everyone dignity. If you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you're going to see over and over again that Jesus' desire is for dignity of human life. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a woman caught in adultery or whatever. So they kept on questioning him. And so he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he just stooped down and began writing on the ground again. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now you've heard this before. And you've probably heard this preached before, and you may have heard conjectures about who this woman was, and and how she was caught in adultery, and how that happened, and and was she she a victim to that or not? And what do we do? We try to find meaning, right? We make interpretations and meaning. But if we look just at the text, just at the text, what does this woman do in this story? How much of this story is about this woman? Zero. 0% of the story is about this woman. She literally does nothing. We don't know if she is sorry. We don't know if she considers what she was doing a sin. We also don't even know what she did after the story. This story is 100% about Jesus' character. In Titus, when Paul says, according to his own mercy, this is where we see what Jesus's mercy looks like. Jesus's mercy is not conditional on a person's response. His character virtue of mercy is not waiting for someone to be sorry. But when we hear the story, we think, well, sure, she was sorry. I mean, I'm sure she was scared. I mean, the, the, the condemnation for her act was stoning. I'm sure she was scared. I don't know that she was sorry. The Bible doesn't tell me. You know what else the Bible doesn't tell me? It doesn't tell me if she actually left her life of sin. It says, Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. In my mind, she like becomes the person who comes to Mount Hermon the next year and she gives testimony from the front. She watches the babies, you know? That's what we wanna believe, right? We don't know. We have no idea. And it's not because those things don't happen when you're in the presence of Jesus. It's because the presence and character of Jesus does not change on condition, do you know that the simple gospel is that God isn't waiting for you to figure out that you're messed up before he forgives you? God is not waiting for you to figure out that you've been condemning yourself before he tells you that you're not condemned. It's his mercy that goes first. I love this definition of God's mercy that says his affection is set on relieving our affliction. That mercy is not God's heel on the back of your neck, holding you down until you say uncle. Mercy is not God pressing and pushing on you to get you to realize that you're really messed up. Mercy is God's affection, his loving affection set on relieving your affliction according to his own mercy, is 100% about Jesus. He is full of grace, and he is full of truth. Notice he does tell her to leave her life of sin. He does say, go and live a God-centered life because it is for your good, it is for your flourishing. But his forgiveness is not based on her response. And I wonder in this room, no matter how long you've been in church, if you are allowing condemning voices to stay around you, and you are condemning yourself, and you are trying to get it together yourself, and you've got memories in your mind where you are still hearing voices that have been in your operating system probably from about age 10. 10, 11, and 12 is where we begin to realize, I better start getting it together. And whatever little hurts that we've experienced, big or little, they begin to help us interpret this world in a certain way. And I don't care if you're 50 years old and you still haven't dealt with that stuff. Jesus is saying, are the voices still around you? Is anyone stoning you? Are people throwing things at you? Are you allowing those memories to continue to live in there? And our Jesus is so patient that he waits and he's waiting and he's right with you. And he's asking the question, has anyone condemned you? And I would ask you the question, are you condemning you? Are you condemning you? Because if you are, maybe the start is realizing it's actually worse than you think. Like that anger, those flashes of anger, that lust that you have for things, that self-medicating that you might be doing like Richard talked about, those places in you that are just persistently kind of mediocre. The fear that is driving you to need more, to create more bubbles around your children that was an idol, sorry about that, whatever that thing is, God's like, Jesus is like, I'm, I'm waiting here, I'm waiting here for you to accept that my love for you is without condition, and, and it never gets old, you guys, it never gets old, I, I never stop needing to turn and experience that now is the day of salvation, and we can hear a story like this, and you just put yourself there, and you're like, am I that woman, or am I that Pharisee? Because what Paul says is actually that it's really bad, and what God says is it's so, so good, that actually our struggles can set us free. Here's the thing. We can only realize redemption if we recognize our brokenness. Look at this definition of redeemed. Look at the words there. To free from what distresses our harms, such as to free from captivity, to extricate from or help to overcome, to release, to free from the consequences of sin. There's no such thing as redemption without brokenness. So until we come face to face with our brokenness, until we ask ourselves the question, where am I experiencing that four-way brokenness in our lives, we don't get to grasp on to the goodness of redemption, there's a psychological theory out there. It's a, it was done by guys who are not Christians. It was a longitudinal study that was done about how people develop as human beings. And they talked about this idea that as we develop, we sort of roll through three different roles in our life. When we're little, we, we're sort of actors on a stage. That's how I would describe it. We, we play a role. We don't get to pick the role that we play. We don't necessarily get to pick that I'm a child of divorced parents or that I'm the middle kid or that I'm shy, but we have these titles placed on us and we believe on this stage of life, this is what these theorists say, that on this stage of life, we just think that we have to play that role that we've been given. And then around age 10, 11, 12, we take on a new role and we become an agent in our story. And when we're an agent in our story, we realize, oh, I can set a goal and go for it and get it. And this is also the time where sometimes we set those goals and we don't get them and we begin to believe, how can I be the captain of my future? And the third and final way, and this is sort of like the the actualized way of experiencing our life, is as an author, we see ourselves as a person writing a story about our life and we begin to take all of these circumstances, the good ones and the hard ones, and make meaning out of them. And what these theorists found, I mean, listen to this. This is where I'm like, God, you're so cool. What these theorists found when they studied people across their whole life was that people in their 70s and 80s who were able to tell a redemptive story about their life Those in their 70s or 80s who would follow a redemptive arc, which means that they were able to take the bad things and see, this is what I learned from that, and this is how this made me a good person. They were the most generous with their lives. They were the most open with their lives, and they were the most sort of flourishing as human beings, regardless of the circumstances. This is not a Christian theory, but our creator, God, he is the master of all. And I think all through creation, God has left these clues about what the real story is. And what the really good story is, is that for each and every one of us, we have experienced brokenness. And for each and every one of us, Jesus comes according to his own mercy. The question is, will we see that redemption at work and take it and say, yes, that is my story. It is worse than I thought, but it can be so much better than I ever believed. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says this in the message. Everything we have right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. Everything we have, right thinking, right living, all of it can be this new story. And because Jesus is not bound by time, it doesn't mean that your story has to be about what's happening right now. Actually, Jesus is a time traveler in our stories. And when we come close to him and we're with him, Jesus can be healing something in the past, something back in chapter two of your life, even while you're living in chapter nine. When I was about 12 years old, I had this bullying situation. I'm still waiting to tell this story and actually have the guy be in the room. I I really somehow believe this is gonna happen. So his name's Doug, Doug, are you here? Okay, because you lived in California with me when we were 11 and 12. And this guy teased me mercilessly. He was such a bully, but there's no such thing as anti-bullying curriculum at the time. And, and for whatever reason, I just had so much shame about the way that I was bullied by this kid that I didn't tell anyone. Because around that age is when we start to develop our own operating system. And because I thought that, you know, good Christians don't have anything bad happen to them, and I, I just didn't tell anyone. And I just closed down. And even though it was just a bully, just a bully, and it was just sixth grade, that's the first time that I remember, when I think back to that wiry root, when I thought, be perfect and don't let people get too close. And I began to live out of that for 10, 12, 15 years. And I didn't ever tell anyone that story about Doug because I moved so I could just like start a new life and I thought that I could just close the door and leave it back there and not have to deal with it but guess what nothing good grows in the dark nothing good toxic mold grows in the dark so when we leave stuff in the dark but it begins to inform the way that we live those weeds will always grow up they will always grow up it's a pay now or pay later situation when we have hurt in our life and we all have hurt in our life We all have things that we begin to live from, whether it's a hurt that you've put on someone else or hurt that someone has put on you. But 12 years later, 12 years later, I was sitting in a circle of middle school girls. I was like 20 years old. I was a wreck of a person. That's what happens when you live out of an operating system that isn't God designed, is that no matter how you look on the outside, you're still a wreck on the inside, and I was, but for some reason, in this little church plant that we were attending, um, my friend and pastor was like, Hey, I think you should start the student ministry. And I was, like I said, immature and dumb enough to say, Sure. So I somehow was literally like a half step ahead in my spiritual life than these middle school girls. But you know what? In God's kingdom, a half step is enough. So stop waiting to get it together before you start serving. That's the lesson there. And I I began to serve from a half step ahead these middle school girls. And I remember this so well. This is such a Kairos moment in my life. I can picture it perfectly. I was in this high school um, cafeteria where I was meeting with these girls before our church plant was meeting in the high school auditorium. And we were sitting in a circle of like 12 girls, and they were 11 and 12 years old. And for some reason, because I was experiencing grace for the first time in a real way, not because I was trying, I wasn't in therapy, I wasn't doing anything about it, I just was opening up to the grace of Jesus Christ. I I just found myself spending time with Jesus. I just want to be with Jesus. I wanted to worship and I wanted to read my Bible. I just I just needed it. And, And because that was happening in this moment in this circle with these girls, it was like I had this like Kairos moment where the spirit said to me, look at these girls. This is the age you were when Doug happened. And I looked around the circle and they were like, they were like ponies, you know, they're all gangly. They got these long arms and legs and bony knees and, and they got braces and frizzy hair. And I'm like, they're babies, they're babies. And for the first time ever, I had literally never spoken of this story. For the first time ever, I just like start telling this story to these middle school girls. And I had, I had told different versions of it, but I told them the real story. And I said how, how, how painful it was and how I was at an outdoor, we had an outdoor campus and I would wait outside the classroom and I just, I would feel this anxiety in my stomach just hoping the teacher would come because I didn't want to have to sit next to him with him whispering in my ear until the teacher came, and how unsafe I felt, because there was no adult there, and it just, it just, when I finally moved, I just was so, and I told them the whole thing, and as I told it, as I opened that door, that was dark, right, because I knew what was behind that door, I knew there would be shame and hurt behind that door, and when I opened that door, like, shame and hurt did not come out, freedom came out, and joy and a sense of redemption and purpose. Like, oh, like God can do something in my heart. While I was not looking, Jesus was healing because that's how God works in our hearts and our lives. When we submit ourselves to him and say, God, I, I want you to redeem it all. And all of these struggles that pop up in my life, I know they're related to other things, and, and I want to be curious about my heart, not condemning. And I want to enter in with you because your mercy, your affection is set on relieving my affliction. And you do that even when I'm not looking. And that day was such a kairos moment of ministry because I thought look what God can do when I'm not even trying. Look what God can do when I don't need to control it. Look what God can do when I just say I am a broken person in need of healing. And it doesn't matter if that brokenness feels small to you because guess what? That is the enemy. That is the enemy of our God who says that you are my child. For any of us, and if you've got probably by teenagers, you've you've come to the point where your child has held back from telling you something. Have you felt that 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 bittersweet and deep pain of loving someone and knowing that all you want to offer them is love, and they don't want to bring it to you because of their shame? And you're thinking, you're my child. I will never condemn you. And yet they hold back. That is how our God looks at us. When we hold on to things and we think, well, no, no, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, I'll work on this one. Or this isn't that big. I don't, I don't need to be there. You know. Surely God doesn't care about this thing. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He cares. So I'm going to invite the worship team up because I know that this is a lot on a Tuesday. Is it Tuesday? This is a lot on a Tuesday morning, yeah? I mean, we were just doing skits and then I was crying about the military video and now we're here. It's a lot, I get it. So, and and some of you, this message is for you right now and some of you are like, wow, that's a lot and that's heavy. I'm just not there right now. But I gave you those inventory to look at and maybe one of those things is sticking out to you where you think, yeah, I, I I do find that there's times where I have an anxious presence and I don't wanna be that person. Or maybe some of you are just being overcome right now because there is something back there that God wants to heal. So wherever you are, I just want to give you time with the God who loves you. I know that in in times like this, in a retreat where you're with your family, you can actually spend this whole week and never actually get alone with God. So I want to give you at least four minutes, okay? So you've got four minutes right now. Some of you will feel uncomfortable with that time, but most of you, hopefully. I'm going to invite you. We're going to hear some music. You can join in to the song, if the best way for you to express in your heart is to worship, I want you to worship. If you just want to write some notes down for a minute, if you want to write out a prayer, and maybe sometimes that prayer can be like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this, but I want to want you. I want to want what you're offering. I want to believe that it's for me. I believe that because Jesus says that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's just so tiny. So if you just can bring the tiniest thing that you have and you wanna just lay that before him, if you wanna be quiet, if you wanna sing, whatever's best for you, we're just gonna take about four minutes and then we'll wrap this up. And then on Thursday and Friday, we're gonna talk about the practical ways that we live in to this new reality. So let me pray for us together. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we just take a few deep breaths in your presence. And God, you know my heart for this room, that these words from your scripture would just come to life. And that Holy Spirit, you would make them real in each one of us. That's not something that we can manufacture or we can do ourselves. It's spirit that you come. Just like it says in Ezekiel that you, you set us on our feet. So Father, as we consider what it looks like to look at our lives and say, God, would you tell my story? Would you help me to see Where you're growing and changing me. Lord, we just pray that you would come and that we wouldn't fear and that we would stay near you as those condemning voices fall away so that we might hear the voice of the one who loves us, Heavenly Father, the one who says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.